So what do Lambeau Field and Carnegie Hall have in common? They're both buildings. It's true. There are probably other things. One of the things is that they've both been dedicated to their namesake, right? They've got names on them. Lambeau Field was City Stadium until 1965. It was dedicated to Curly Lambeau, one of the founders, players, and coaches of the Packers. Carnegie Hall was dedicated to Andrew Carnegie because of the money he gave to build it. That's often why names are on buildings these days. But why are they dedicated? To acknowledge someone's contribution. For Carnegie, it's the money he gave. For Lambeau, it, it commemorates his role in the team and everything he's contributed to it. Well, we're going to see the dedication this morning. The dedication of the completed wall in Jerusalem. But it's a little bit different than adding Yahweh's name to the wall. Putting a little plaque there, maybe a big sign. In fact, that doesn't even happen. So what does? As Dan would say, let's find out, shall we? Nehemiah 12, 27. This is the word of the Lord. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nedophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Gabah and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mattaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the towers of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the, and the singers sang with Jezriah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, 
Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification and did the, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgivings to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in it. We ask that you would help us this morning by your spirit, that you would illuminate your word, that we would see you in the midst of it, and that we would see ourselves more clearly, that you would be working in us to change us, to make us more like our Savior. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming near the end. I think next week is the last week in Nehemiah. So we're finishing up Ezra and Nehemiah together, which is really just one book. And this passage today is really the climax of these two books together. It's the high point of it all. All the projects have been finished. The exiles have been returned, at least large portions of them. The temple has been rebuilt Ezra has brought the law back and proclaimed it to the people. The wall has been rebuilt. And the city of Jerusalem has been repopulated. If you go back and read 11 through where we are here in 12, you'll see that, the repopulation of Jerusalem. So now it's time to celebrate. So as we see this dedication, it might look like just a building dedication or a grand opening. I know some of you were at the Chick-fil-A opening with me and you see the music and the songs and the energy and the hype. But something different is happening. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness. Jerusalem is once again the holy city. It was referred to that at the beginning of chapter 11 for the first time in these two books. It's the place in which the Lord's name dwells. It's a city that's set apart, and that's what's happening here. It's being dedicated to the Lord. It's being set apart for him. Things finally resemble, once again, what they were meant to this whole time. God has not abandoned what he promised. We see this continue in the way it's connected to David throughout, if you notice that. It goes back to David multiple times. It's almost like we're hitting a reset button. Your router screws up and you unplug it and count to 30 because you know you count too fast to count to 15 and it to work. You plug it back in. Restore to default settings. It's a recognition that by the good hand of God on his people that this work has been completed it's a celebration of what he's done. It's again the city of Zion, city on a hill, meant to display God's glory to all the nations. We can't just look at what has been done, but now we look to the future as well. 
It affects how they have to live going forward. You can't keep the status quo of the last 500 years. We've seen where that has led. Covenant unfaithfulness. Worshiping other gods. We know that where that leads. If we're going to continue in that, then what's this even for? So what does that mean for how they approach this dedication? Dan said a couple of weeks ago that alliterations can be cheesy. But if you know me well, you know that I don't mind being a little cheesy. Especially now that I'm a dad. It's allowed. So they approach this dedication with purification, with praise, and with provision. Purification, praise, and provision. First with purification. In verses 27 to 29, they gather, and the they is the the population of Jerusalem now that's just been repopulated. And they seek out the Levites and the singers. And the Levites are the tribe of Jews who are responsible for providing the service to the temple, who offer the sacrifices, who keep up with all all the things surrounding all that work. And they gather them to celebrate with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with music. So once they're gathered, how does the celebration begin? You'll get verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So what does that mean? (laughs) We We don't talk about things like that, purifying them. It's kind of a foreign concept for us. If you Remember reading in the law in the Old Testament, Leviticus, especially chapters 11 to 15, you read all this stuff about uncleanness and cleanness and what you have to do for what and how all of that works. And it can get a little confusing. And it's talking about ritual uncleanness or ritual purity. Those can be kind of interchanged. Cleanness, purity, impurity, uncleanness. And that affects what a person's able to do in worship on how they're able to approach God. For example, if you're ritually, ritually unclean, you can't participate in the fellowship offering. You're excluded from that. In sense, you could think of it like going to a black tie event. Like if you don't go rent the tux, I assume we're all renting tuxes here. If you don't go rent it, you don't get to go. Right? You have to be dressed appropriately. But here it's not about clothes. It's a ritual status that signifies our ability to come before a holy God. If you're unclean, you can't enter into God's presence. Well, why is that? What's the purpose of these laws around ritual purity? Old Testament scholar Jay Sklar gives three purposes for these laws around impurity, purity, and holiness. First, the Lord is holy. He lives in the holy city, in the holy temple, and his bedroom is called the most holy place, the holy of holies. He is, holy means it's set apart, unique, and he is utterly set apart and unique in his power, in his purity, and in his love, as the hymn goes. He does no wrong and can do no wrong. He is unlike us. And every time the Bible talks about the need for God's people to be holy, it's this continual underscoring 
The Lord is holy. Which leads to the second point. The Lord wants his people to be holy. He wants them to reflect his holiness. They're set apart as his own. They're not like the rest of the world anymore. They're the people of a holy God, and they can demonstrate this concern for holiness as they make these distinctions between these ritual states by respecting and guarding that which is holy. They are set apart, and so they should look different if they're to look like their God. Which leads to the third, that the Lord wants his people to be holy in all of life. These laws about ritual holiness are constant reminders that they're to be holy not merely ritually, but also morally. Sklar says, as the Israelites made these distinctions between purity and impurity from a ritual perspective, they were constantly reminded that they had been set apart to be a people of purity from a moral perspective. These two should go hand in hand. So by purifying themselves, the people, the gates, and the walls, they're setting them apart for the Lord. They're acknowledging that the Lord is holy. and He wants his people to be holy because they are his people, whom he has called, whom he has redeemed, first from Egypt, now from exile. Before they can go and worship him, they must be purified. They can't even attempt the rest before. It would be unacceptable. And it wasn't this one time for a big event. It's continual. We see that in verse 45, that the priests continue to perform the service of purification. Something that we need over and over. It's an external thing. It's this external ritual that's meant to reflect this internal reality. It's like you don't wear a Bears jersey and talk about how you're a Packers superfan. Right? Not if you want anyone to take you seriously. You can't disobey what God commands, remain impure, and join in the worship aspects that you like. You're not fooling anyone. Least of all, God. You take him as he is on his terms, or you get none of him. And we know these ceremonial laws are no longer in effect. We haven't had a purification service here as far as I'm aware. The whole sacrificial system, all of that pointed forward to Christ, who fulfilled it all by his perfect life his sacrificial death, that he is the sacrifice. So we don't have to ritually purify ourselves in order to worship the Lord. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, he says that you were ransomed from your feudal ways by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He has ransomed us from that. We are holy in God's eyes, because of Christ's righteousness given to us, that we have access to the holy of holies, to the throne room of grace. We even have the Lord himself in the Holy Spirit indwelling us. 
We have full access to God. And yet our Lord does not change. He is still a holy God who desires his people to be holy in all of life. Even in the New Testament, the charge remains. Christ doesn't purify you and you do whatever you want. Peter, just before he says that, says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He desires us to be holy in all of life. So if you have trusted in Christ, he has atoned for your sins. It's an Old Testament word, meaning that he has both paid the debt and cleansed you. Both of them by the shedding of his blood. And knowing that he has done this, we must live in light of it. You must pursue holiness. Not to clean yourself up, not to make yourself acceptable before God but because you have been cleansed. Because he wants you to look like him. We cannot continue in ways that are indistinguishable from the world around us, a world that is at enmity with God, if we love the one who calls us, the one who saves us. He has set his people apart to be like him, And we have his spirit to change us, to empower us to do so. We need to consider and pursue holiness in all of life. The ceremony begins as God's people and things are purified. Now it proceeds as God's people praise him. So first was purification and now we see praise And in this praise, two things are highlighted, thanksgiving and joy. First is thanksgiving. So Nehemiah gathers the leaders up onto the wall in verse 31, which is a little ironic if you remember back to Tobiah's taunt earlier that if a fox climbed up on it, it'd fall over. (laughs) Now there's a bunch of people gathered up on it. And he divides them into two great choirs who give thanks. More literally, it's two thanksgivings. He appoints two thanksgivings. It's the same in verses 38 and 40. These choirs are the embodiment of what they're singing, of what they're saying, of what they're doing, thanking God. So they go in opposite directions. He sends Ezra to the south making the loop. And then Nehemiah goes with the other one to the north to make the loop. So they make the full circuit between the two of them, encapsulating the city and the wall with thanksgiving. The whole city is set apart. If you remember back to chapter 3, the summary of the wall being built, there were 41 families or groups there that contributed, that played their part in building different sections of the wall. And you can imagine them as they're walking along, praising God for what he's done, singing thanksgivings that it's finished, saying that's, that's where we were. We built that part despite people saying they were going to kill us. 
despite half of us having to hold swords and spears and guard us as we continued in the work, God is good. God is faithful. God has brought it to completion. Praise God. It's this visible and tangible reminder for them of what God has done. And these processions of thanksgiving naturally lead then to the temple. Though they're dedicating the finished walls, they don't finish on the wall. The focal point is on the one who dwells in the house of God. To what does their thanksgiving lead? Look at verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. They offered great sacrifices. These offerings to the Lord were given. Those were highlighted in the dedication of the temple back in Ezra 6. Here it's just mentioned. What's highlighted here is that the thanksgiving has led to joy. If you were paying attention in that verse, you heard it five times. If you remember back to Ezra 3, they laid the foundation of the temple. And there was another sound heard far away from Jerusalem. But there, there was weeping mixed with the sounds of joy. And they were indistinguishable. It was noise from Jerusalem. Here there is no doubt. God's people are filled with joy. God has filled them with joy. There's been this shift as the people have continued to see God's faithfulness. Their praise is marked by thanksgiving leading to joy. Is yours? It's easy to go through the motions, isn't it? To come here, sing songs, saying the words, without thinking about it, without feeling any of it. It's easy to look at the difficult things in our lives and forget what we have to be thankful for. Maybe that's where you need to start this morning, by remembering what you have to be thankful for. What is your piece of the wall that you can look back on see God at work, to see his goodness, to see his hand on your life. If you're being honest with how you feel, you might say, I have nothing to be thankful for. Holidays especially are hard for some people. But I hope that you've been able to reflect on Christmas. And it has reminded you otherwise that God himself left heaven and took on flesh to live a humble life. He had nowhere to lay his head. His family thought he was a lunatic. He's single his whole life. His best friends abandon and betray him. 
The religious leaders and authorities are out to kill him. He suffers and dies a humiliating death on a cross. Why? For you. If you will trust in Christ. He will save all who trust in him. Are you poor? Jesus said he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Are you oppressed? He said he came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Do you weep? Have you suffered loss? Jesus weeps with Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus, and he weeps with you. Do you feel alone? Jesus says he will never leave you or forsake you. And I'm not trying to minimize these real struggles in our lives. <laughs> these are hard, heavy things. I'm going to say the Israelites are not ignorant of them. They can relate. It's not all hunky-dory for them. They are poor. They have just been brought out of exile. They're still living under Persian reign. They still have family scattered all over. Even the temple that they now built and are celebrating and praising God for is but a shadow of Solomon's. And yet they are filled with thanksgiving and joy because they see God's faithfulness to them. Because they see his faithfulness to his covenant. Look to Christ with thanksgiving. Trust in him and his promises. He is enough. But we hear from Paul, even as he's writing from prison to the Philippians. We quote this verse and forget that Paul's in prison writing it. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Notice it's in the Lord. Others of you know abundance. You could easily list out dozens of things you at least know you should be thankful for. Whether we are thankful can be a different thing. And yet it might not lead to joy. And I think the reason is the same. That we're not rejoicing in the Lord. You may be thankful for what he's given you, but you've forgotten that he has given it to you. You look to the blessing instead of to the one who has blessed you. To you, I also say, look to Christ. You will have real joy. Joy that will be heard by others as praises leave your lips. People begin by purifying themselves. Then they praise God. 
with thanksgiving and rejoicing that is heard from far away. So what's the plan going forward? Seeing purification and praise, now we come to provision. They need to continue in their covenant. It's not a one-day show, and then it's done. It's not Curly Lambeau or Andrew Carnegie who are now dead and who are remembered for it but have no effect on what's happening now. They're God's people who have just renewed their covenant with him just two chapters ago. And as Dan pointed out, one of the things they focused on was their giving. They actually spent substantially more time talking about what they're committed to giving for the service of the temple than they did for anything else. So now in verse 44, they appoint those who will gather the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes, and portion them out as required by the law. We've kind of done that with our deacon team, which you can email at the email address on the back of the worship guide. And our finance team, they collect them, they're responsible for counting and then bills payable and all that. And then it says in verse 47 that they gave what they were supposed to while Zerubbabel and Nehemiah were governors there. All the different services of the temple were provided for. All their ministry was able to continue. So what does this look like or mean for us? And I know we give this disclaimer every time, right? But I know one of the criticisms about the church often comes up as we're always talking about money. But it comes up again here, so we're going to talk about it again. And while I don't feel like we talk about it that much at Emmaus Road, uh, when it comes up, we do. So if it feels like it does to you, I think that might be a reflection of how much the Bible talks about it, which actually means it might be something you need to think about. And I get some of the hesitation as well. Most of us have probably seen churches where giving is highly pressured and there may be some questionable spending. Some of you probably have personal experience with that. I'd like to say three things to that. One, abuse does not negate proper use. That's a good thing to just know for everything in life. Because people have done it poorly and have done it wrongly does not mean it should not be done rightly. Two, we try to be transparent at Emmaus Road about our finances. There's a giving update in the worship guide even today. You can have access to our budget if you're so inclined, seeing where money's going. And three, your pastors and elders don't know who gives what, I don't know what you give or don't give. You are not ministered to any differently because of the money that you give. You are more than your money. You are a person made in the image of God. So with what I'm about to say, I'm not singling any of you out, nor am I patting any of you on the back. I'm trying, not trying to raise money because we really need something right now, and we're going to show you the budget that just increased 50% for 2022 not doing that. I'm just trying to preach and apply what I see in this text. So if you're convicted, that might be the Holy Spirit working. 
So the church isn't exactly the same as the temple, but it does function in many similar ways. It's where God's people gather, where his presence is especially known among us, where the sacraments are administered and celebrated, where God's word is proclaimed and explained, where people are converted and discipled. And it's the responsibility of the people to provide for its work to be able to continue. So we don't usually talk about it this straightforwardly, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it, that if you belong to the church, you should be giving to the church to provide for its continuing service. If you belong to Emmaus Road, you should be giving to Emmaus Road to provide for its continuing service. You might disagree, but I don't feel like that part's that controversial. I think what's more controversial is how much we have to give. And I put it that way on purpose because I think that hits at the issue is how much do I have to give? Right? If you want to go back and look a couple chapters ago at what they were committing to by the law, you can do that. I don't think that necessarily applies to us, but give you a frame of reference for even what we're talking about here with these people. But we have such a tendency to want to hold on to money because we can use it for other things because we earned it because we can get that thing that will make me happy or we can just have it there just in case. I think that's why the Bible talks about it so much because we're so quick to trust in it, to cling to it for our provision, for our salvation rather than God. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But when we understand that everything that we have comes from the Lord, it becomes less of an issue to give some of it back. And the question can then shift from how much do I have to give to how much am I able to give? And even among those who disagree on whether a certain amount is required, they still agree that Christians are to give generously and gladly. We even see that last aspect here in our text in verse 44, that though they are obligated to give and have committed themselves to it, it says they do it because they rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. They were obligated, but they were motivated by joy. Because they were thankful. This joy of worship is met by the joy of giving to support that worship. So if you've had a hard time with all that I've just said, I'd like to have you think through the question, why wouldn't I want to give to support God's worship at the church I belong to? Why wouldn't I? Dan would be happy to talk about that question with you. <laughs> I will too. But I think that might get at the heart of it a little bit better. Right? Why wouldn't I want to do that? That's what God's concerned with more is the heart. Right? He doesn't need your money. He wants all of you. So I would ask, are you giving generously and gladly. Some of us give generously, but there's no joy even in it. 
It's an auto-draft that we don't even think about. That can be me sometimes. Not even joyful to support. I also don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying God will bless you if you give. That's the prosperity gospel. God has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You don't buy blessings. And I'm also not saying that you should just give all your money to the church and God will take care of you. Like We are to responsibly steward what he's given to us. We're to still provide for our families and pay our debts as best we're able. And some of you might be in a tough spot and that's why you're hesitant to give. Some of you may have never been taught how to manage your finances. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. But you can learn now. There are people in this church who would love to help you with that. Help you learn how to manage your money, how to budget how to curtail extra spending. So if you need help in that area, please let us know. You can email the deacons. Their email address is on the back of the worship guide. I say it jokingly, but I'm serious. So We want to help you grow in your ability to take good care of what God has given you. It's easy to have a high point or a big event like the dedication that we're excited about and willing to provide for. You see that with the great sacrifices. You go back to that Ezra 6 and look at it like it's a lot of stuff. But then they're also called to provide for the ongoing regular service of the church. That God's kingdom might grow in breadth and depth and that it might continue from generation to generation The wall isn't dedicated so that a benefactor's name can be attached to it and we can all move on. It's dedicated so that the city is now set apart again as the holy city of God and his worship can continue on as God's glory is proclaimed among all mankind. It's about worship. Purification, praise, and provision, all of them are wrapped up in the worship of God. It says, you are holy. That you are worthy of all praise. That you are all we need. And we want to see your name glorified in all the earth. May our lives and our church be marked by such worship.